What's going on, everybody? I'm Jen St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 80 of the Adult Education Podcast. Joining me today is clinical psychologist, Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler. Thanks so much for hanging out today. I uh, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Adult education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I know most of you listen via Spotify. Those five stars are huge. If you got a second to do that, that would be really, really appreciated. If you're using a platform that allows a review, please share a few words as well. That also helps the podcast algorithms. This show is being posted on a Thursday, which is a day later than usual, so sorry about that. Things got a little busy around here. I need a little extra time to get this one done. I'm going to have two episodes for you this week, so get ready for back-to-back episodes. Today, though, I'm talking with Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, and we're discussing how to raise strong teenage daughters. The world is a very different place today than it was even just 10 years ago. Kids are connected to the digital world all day. Even if they don't have a phone, kids still use devices for education and other extracurricular activities. It's inevitable. They're going to be connected in some way. People are communicating digitally as opposed to in person. It's just so hard to keep up with what's going on out there in the lives of our kids. One thing we talk about in this conversation is how parents always used to have an inside track into what their kids were interested in or what was going on because phone conversations would happen in the house or they'd be driving their kids to school and they'd overhear the chatter. But now everything is done digitally, so parents don't have that outlet anymore. It's so difficult to peel back the layers on teenagers now. Dr. Cohen Sandler recently published the book, Anything But My Phone Mom, Raising Emotionally Resilient Daughters in the Digital Age. I really, really love this conversation. So I have a daughter. Now, my daughter is just over 14 months old, so we're not quite ready for some of these strategies yet, but I'm always trying to learn so I can be ahead of the game. I'll say that even though my daughter is so young, she still loves electronics. She goes after my phone every time I put it down. And it's not like she uses it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I've given it to her from time to time when I have an interview or a work meeting. But it's fascinating, though, how kids now seem to have this natural attraction to digital devices. Before we jump into the conversation, just a reminder to leave a rating on adult education. That really helps the show get noticed by the podcast algorithm gods. And you can find us on social media at Adult Education Podcast on Instagram. Hi there. Hi there. I apologize for being a minute late. My previous interview kept me. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. I've been in my own personal hell today, so it's okay. It actually helped me out. Oh, a no. Bit. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry to hear that. No, it's okay. It's actually very fitting uh, for this conversation because I've got a 14 month old daughter who, who is now fighting me on taking naps. I, I plan all my interviews around what should be nap time, but today she was like, not today, dad. <laughs> you know what? She's training you early that. Who is in charge here? Right, right, exactly, 100%. I've learned very early on. So anyway, we've we've had a busy afternoon, but we're good, and I'm ready to talk to you, and I'm so excited to chat about your book. Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, the book is called Anything But My Phone Mom, Raising Emotionally Resilient Daughters in the Digital Age. I have to say, even though my daughter's 14 months old, her favorite thing is my phone. Like, if she sees it, anywhere within grasp. And she's so smart. Like if I have it on the edge of the couch or something, she'll come crawling over to me and be all cute and give me a hug and then lean over and grab the phone. I'm like, you're not even two years old yet. How do you already know how to manipulate me? Oh, well, there's that. And the fact that when she does pick up the phone, Within seconds, you're going to see things on your phone that you've never seen before. You're like, well, how does she do that? What just happened? 
my favorite videos on my phone are the ones that she takes where I, I go back to look for something. I'm like, what's this video? And it's her crawling on the floor because she just happened to start the recorder. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Say, I have a two-year-old granddaughter and she just turned two and she FaceTimes me. She knows how to do it. That's awesome. I've I've only had one experience where she's called somebody and thankfully it was just my wife and not like 911 <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah, that will happen though. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's coming. I I, I fully believe that. Uh, I do want to get one thing out of the way right now. We'll talk about the elephant in the room with this book. This book was written more for moms and daughters in that relationship. Now, that's not to say that a dad can't take something from it. Um, but Absolutely. But what is the what's the difference or that's probably a rhetorical question, but what's the difference between a mother-daughter relationship and a father-daughter relationship? Like what's the big, the big takeaway from this? The big takeaway is that mothers and daughters often have a more fraught relationship. It's much more intense usually than a father-daughter relationship. And part of that is that girls are needing to figure themselves out, figure out who they want to be and form their identity during the adolescent years. So they're looking at their moms as their most available role models and they're scrutinizing their moms. And so your 14 month old daughter at some point in her adolescence will probably look at your wife and say, you're wearing that. And, and your, your wife will not be happy. Um, and so there's often this sort of tension that, that occurs. Whereas for fathers and daughters, that doesn't exist in the same way. But in terms of social media, um, there's a lot that parents, that fathers as well as mothers um, can, can do and can learn. Even, even the parts about how mothers might be able to understand more where girls are coming from in terms of their issues about body and self-consciousness and puberty. Those are some areas that usually moms are, are more close to, but not all the time. And I think about just the way that I'm 41 uh, now, which is weird to say, but I'm 41. And I, I think about how I was raised versus how kids are growing up now. I mean, it's a, a world of difference between that time frame. I mean, it's almost like, you know, completely different worlds altogether. But when I was younger, if you were in the house and you wanted to interact, you had to go find somebody in the house to interact with, or maybe dial somebody up on the phone and hope they were home because you didn't know, you just give it a chance and we'll call my friend. But now there's so many different opportunities to have that interaction that I feel like, I don't wanna say it hurts, but it changes the way that families interact in general because there are so many other opportunities for interaction now versus before. I agree with you. And I would even say that I think that there's a, there's a detriment to that. Not all the, you know, not all social media is bad. Not always, you know, technology is not always bad. Um, there are lots of positive things about it, but the thing that you just mentioned, I think is one of the most concerning things because teens have the ability to connect with people, with sites all the time. And it is taking away a lot of times from the kinds of relationships, the kind of face-to-face -face relationships that parents like to have with their kids, even something like entertainment. You know, when my daughter and my son were growing up, when they were teenagers, we didn't have TVs in their room because we wanted to encourage us all watching together. And that became a vehicle, just spending time with one another, but 
also talking about some of the things that we saw in the teen shows, you know, issues and our values about things and good problem solving. It became a vehicle to talk about those things. But nowadays, with teens in their bedrooms watching videos on their phones or their devices, parents aren't getting that opportunity anymore. And I think that's something I, I advocate for parents considering family time sacred, whether it's entertainment or the dinner table, sure. especially. It's almost in a way counterintuitive because we always preach interaction and connection and we need to have that as human beings, we need to have connection with people. And now we're more connected than we ever have been in the history of this world. But at the same time, we're further apart than we ever have been at any, any point in history too. It's such a strange system that we have going on. It is strange because what we're not getting from a lot of the communication through technology is we're not getting intimacy. We're not seeing people's facial expressions. We're not hearing their voices. And therefore, we're not getting the nuances of what they're saying. We convey a lot more about ourselves when we see each other than when we're communicating via text or things like that. And so there's a depth and an intimacy that we're not getting. And as a result, a lot of kids growing up today are not getting those social skills. They're not as able to read facial expression, read other people's emotions, put themselves in other people's shoes. And it's starting to affect them in terms of you know, getting jobs and things. One of the things you talk about in the book is as a parent, you know, when you would drive your kids or your, your your kid and their friends to say a movie theater or something, you would kind of get a feel for what music they were into because they'd want to play with the radio or you'd kind of overhear some conversations to get a grasp of what's going on in their lives. But you don't even really have that anymore because it's all done via text or you've got the headphones in or whatever, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I never really thought about that perspective that that was such an important time. It's, you're not eavesdropping. You're in the car with them, but you're but you're picking up on those cues of what social life is like for them in that moment. And you don't really have those opportunities the same anymore. No, you don't. And especially, you know, even if you had landlines and and teenagers were talking, you know, on the landline. Well, you know, you, you weren't eavesdropping, but you know, unless they were whispering, you would pick up little things sure. here and there. You you kind of had a sense of what was going on. Well, nowadays, if they're in the car, you know what they're doing? They're texting to each other. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's utter silence, you know? <laughs> and uh, fortunately that's not even happening as much anymore because kids aren't going out as much and they don't need rides as much. So a lot of those sources of information are getting dried up, which is why I think it's so important for parents to kind of adapt to that and to realize that nothing is a substitute for sitting down with your teen and talking to them about these things that really matter. I, one of the best things that I saw, I've lived in my house for four years, and so two years during the pandemic. And right when the pandemic started, all of these kids that I had never seen before magically were outside playing. And 
it was amazing to see all these kids. Like, I knew there were families, but I didn't know how many kids. They're having Nerf gun wars. They're running around. They're playing in the snow in the wintertime. And it was just so amazing to see this shift and this change to we need to get out and we need to actually see each other because they don't they didn't have the outlet of maybe being in a classroom or whatever. And now they're out all the time. They're out. And I'm just thinking, that's great. Like, I hope other kids took advantage of that situation to get outside. Well, you know, sometimes we want the things that we can't have. And so what happened to me was I wrote this book prior to the pandemic. And then I pretty much wrote it and I was just finishing it in the first few months. And then the publication got delayed by 18 months. And so, so much happened after that, that when I was editing it, you know, putting the final touches on it, I was inserting all of the stuff that I had learned from the pandemic. And a similar thing happened because prior to the pandemic, Teens didn't want to see each other in person. I mean, they saw each other in school. They weren't getting together after school. The statistics said it was like 40% less socializing than eighth graders did, you know, a few years before. They didn't want to get driver's licenses. They, they had no need to get out of the house. But all of a sudden, during all those long months of quarantine and being told they couldn't go to school and they couldn't see their friends in person, all of a sudden seeing their friends became their number one goal in life. It was so fascinating. And all of a sudden they needed to hug their friends. They needed to touch. Fascinating. It is. It's so interesting, especially the way that you just put that, like that became the number one goal given the situation as the situation shifted. So did the perceptions of what life needed to be which is just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's true of all of us. I mean, I don't think adults got through this pandemic without kind of reassessing what their priorities were, mm. whether it's relationships, certain relationships that they value more, certain that they don't, certain activities that they value more. Um, I think we all wanna get outside more. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> uh, one thing that I know is important for for all you know teenagers, all growing children, uh, but primarily I feel like you hear about this a lot more with young women is confidence. And as things have shifted more into the digital world, I believe that confidence must be a lot harder to come by because what you're seeing in the digital world is always the best of the best. You're always seeing somebody's best moment or somebody's best lighting or whatever it may be that it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror and go, man, I don't look like that. But real realistically, they don't look like that either. That's just the perfect moment that they had. So so how do you really how do you really develop that confidence in a young girl as she's growing up to understand like it's okay to not be perfect? You're talking about something that is so key and has been key for a long time. So let's go back a few years before there was the internet, before there was social media. And this was the kind of education that you had to do when you were looking at commercials or when you were looking at women's magazines or girls' magazines, and you see these incredible models, you know, and you have to talk about the fact that they've been airbrushed. And I remember finding articles like that and sharing them with my daughter when, when the models talked about everything that was done to them, you know, that it looked like that they just woke up out of bed and looked like that. But in reality, it had been seven grueling hours of a team working on them, you know? So there was the perception and then there was the reality. And in the same way, I think that you have to do the same thing with social media. Um, the statistic says that kids are 
they have a media bias. If they see something on social media, they overestimate people's happiness by like 17%, right? And so just as you teach teens about advertising and being good consumers, the same thing has to be done with media. You have to teach them that, of course, everybody is posting their best selves and acting like they're so popular and they're so happy and they're doing all these fun things. You're not seeing when they're at home crying. You're not seeing the insecurities. Um, and you're doing the same thing online. And so I think it's always important to talk to girls about authenticity. That, you know, and, and parents can do a lot with this. So if they recognize, for example, that their daughters aren't always going to be happy, that sometimes they're going to be sad or upset or worried or disappointed, and they don't try to brush over that, but they validate that to be human is to have all kinds of emotions. And we have good days, we have bad days, we have good moments, we have bad moments. We don't always look at our best, we don't always act at our best, but we try as best we can every day. Having that kind of attitude as a foundation, hopefully will help girls not to think that they don't have to be perfect on social media either. You're leading right into something else that I saw and you talk about failing successfully. And I think that's something uh, else that we don't, we don't prioritize the idea that failure is okay. Like you learn from that failure. You can take that failure and look at it as a learning moment and move forward. Instead, we don't either allow our kids to fail, you know, the whole idea of the quote unquote participation trophy. Everybody wins all the time. There is no failure or kids are just so concerned about failing because again, all they see is that perfection. So they don't know that there is that other side of things where they have those anxiety attacks, where somebody might have an anxiety attack or have a really bad day. They're just so, they, so we need to understand that failure is an option. Oh, I think it's even more than an option. I think it's a necessity hmm. for so many reasons, because unless you're failing, you're not striving for new things. You're not learning, right? You can't possibly learn something without making mistakes along the way, any new skill. And so you really frozen, you know, you're really impeded from growing unless you're open to making mistakes. And that's why it kills me when I see uh, parents sort of expecting kids to get an A plus on everything or an A on everything and not allowing that maybe they chose something that was a little more challenging, but they're, they want to be challenged and they're willing to kind of know that they're not going to be perfect. Well, that's to me optimal, right? And the same thing happens with technology. If parents go into it with the mindset that their kids are going to make mistakes because they are going to make mistakes, it's a big skill to learn. There are lots of nuances to it. Their brains are still immature. And there are many unforeseen circumstances that are going to come up. So you can't prepare them for absolutely everything. But if they have that mindset that, yes, you're going to make mistakes, then kids are going to feel more comfortable admitting things to parents or even coming to parents when they're confronting something that makes them uncomfortable. And parents are going to be less likely to freak out and be very angry or punitive which is gonna discourage further discussions.
my friends tell me I'm crazy. My friends with the kids tell me I'm crazy. But I so look forward to having these conversations with my daughter when she's older. I grew up in a very like authoritarian household where it was my way or the highway kind of thing. And as I grew, I, I realized that's just not how my brain works. So I understood like there was a lot of tension between my parents and I because I just I'm one of those people that I need to understand why that's the way or it's the highway. Like tell me why I can't do this or tell me why my friends can stay out super late and I can't. So I'm so excited to have those conversations with my daughter to be a part of that conversation. Like, I, I don't judge my parents for what they did. They did their best as parents, and we're, we're all good. But I just, I want to be able to, I know my daughter is going to lie to me, but I want her to tell me the truth when it counts. Like, I want her to be there as part of the conversation to have that openness. Absolutely. And, you know, the other reason that you want to have that conversation with her is that that is how she understands your thought processes and how you assess situations and how you solve problems. And by speaking that aloud to her, she is able to understand that, participate in it, and gradually internalize that process to make smart decisions when you're not there. Uh, something else you talk about in the book is getting kids to understand healthy lifestyles. And I, I feel like nowadays you do hear a lot more about healthy lifestyles, but our kids, the way that they uh, have to operate, you know, if they want to get into college, they have to have X amount of hours of community service or however many extracurricular activities and sports and whatever. It's almost like there is no free time. The only time you have needs to be occupied with things that you need to do in order to build that sort of resume to get to the next level. So how do you, how do you explain how important it is to have, you know, healthy lifestyles, things like going outside, getting exercise, things like that? How do you explain that and make sure that they understand, like, that's still such an important part of life? Oh, I think you have to say it over and over and over again. And you also have to walk the walk. I'll tell you that I feel so strongly about this. Um, I insisted that my kids have a free period during the day when they were in high school. And I was the parent. They called me a lunatic, but I used to say to them, you must stop studying now. It is too late. Nothing good is going to come at studying this hour. You're much better off getting sleep. And I'd be accused of, you know, you don't want me to do well. <laughs> no, that's not it. I want you to be healthy. It's more important to me that you're healthy than what grade you get. And if you believe that, which I, I did 100%, and you are backing up these words with what you're doing. You know, you're modeling yourself, um, sitting down sometimes and taking a rest or not working 24 seven or going out doing exercise, being healthy. Then it's the whole family doing it together. And they're going to see that a lot of families don't operate that way. A lot of families, believe that kids, you know, idle hands and do the devil's work and all that kind of thing. And the kids are overscheduled, but it's all, it always comes back to, these are our values. This is how we are choosing to live. Families are going to make their own choices, but this is why we're doing this. So I think it's important to have those sacred downtimes. I mean, and also the other thing is that without that downtime, there's no creativity. Sure. You need solitary time to create music, to write, um, to invent, to do crafts, to, I mean, anything. I was just interviewing somebody who wrote a book called I Didn't Do the Thing Today, 
and it's I think it's the subtitle is Letting Go of Productivity Guilt. And it talks about all this this whole thing about how we've built into our lives or we have to be productive 24 hours a day. And if we're not, we're doing something wrong. And she makes that argument that if you schedule your entire day out, well, where's the creativity? Like you're actually hurting yourself by scheduling it all out. You need to leave some room to just say, all right, you know what? The laundry can wait till tomorrow. We're going to be okay. We'll do something. You know, and it, it is such an interesting thought. And then, then you bring it up here too. It just kind of solidifies how important that actually is. Yeah. And there have been studies that show that too, that uh, if you're stuck on something, that it's important to regain your creativity by moving and preferably moving outside. And I'll tell you, I was writing something the other day that was I was difficult. It was difficult. And I was stuck. And I was debating about whether I could deal with the cold weather outside. But since the sun was out, I decided I would be brave. And I got all bundled up. I walked outside. Halfway through my walk, I suddenly had this, I wasn't even thinking about it. It just popped into my head. And it was like, oh, that's what I should be writing. I mean, it was just the most incredible thing. So I've experienced that myself. And when I tell my students about that too, um, there are many times where they'll come back to me and say, you know, you were right. I was really stressed and I went outside and I walked around the block and I felt so much better. And then I could sit down and do what I was trying to do. A second ago, you mentioned if you're going to you know, walk the walk and you also talk in the book about routines and how important routines can be in a daily life. But if you're going to help your teens set up a routine, you also need to be on that. Like you can't you can't say, okay, you have to do X, Y, Z in the morning, but the parent is meanwhile sitting on the couch watching SportsCenter or whatever on TV. Like you need to be a part of this routine at the same time if you want it to stick with your kid. Yes, and also commitments. Yeah. So I've had a lot of teens tell me that their mothers are furious with them in the morning because it's hard for them to get up and they're late getting onto the bus or they're late getting their ride and everything. But then they say to me in the next breath, but my mother was supposed to fill out this permission slip for my, for my field trip and she didn't do it. Or I keep asking her to make a doctor appointment for me and she doesn't do it. And so it's really, it's not even just about the routine. It's about being able to be accountable to other people and doing what you're supposed to do. And, you, you know, as a parent, you have to be so scrupulously self-aware. Otherwise, your daughters are going to very helpfully point out all your flaws. Oh, I can't wait for that. I'm sure I, I know my, <laughs> my wife is going to feel the brunt of it, I'm sure. But I cannot wait until I start getting it, too. I, have, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. <laughs> Before you know it. <laughs> I also like the title of the book, too, Anything But My Phone Mom, because I imagine that Given what we've learned in the last couple of years, my wife is a teacher of middle school students, so I know oh. how, I know how important it is for these kids to have their devices because a lot of them were learning at home for many months, even more than a year, learning from home, educating that way. So even if you did take the phone away as a punishment, well, there's still other things they're probably going to have to use, so you really can't take away everything. That's right. And middle school teachers have the best perspective. I interviewed a bunch of them for this book. They had the most incredible insights. I loved it. I love talking to them. 
I don't think you could talk to my wife right now. She was involved in a fight in school, and I don't think she likes her students very much right now, but maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) When she came home with Gatorade all over her sweatshirt, she's like, I don't like them today. Not today. You know what? Even moms feel that way. Even dads feel that way. We don't always like our kids. We love them, but some days they're not lovable. Next, tomorrow's a new day. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler, the book is Anything But My Phone Mom, Raising Emotionally Resilient Daughters in the Digital Age. Where can people go if they want to find out more information about you? Is there like a centralized location or social media? Or Yes, I have a website. Um, it's RonnieCohenSandler.com, R-O-N-I-C-O-H-E-N-S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. And that's my kind of central location. From there, you can see my blogs. I have a newsletter through Substack. Um, there, there are all kind, there's all kinds of information. I have videos and anything you really need to ask, you can find out on, online. Well, I love this work you put together. I know we talked about this before, that it's kind of geared uh, to the mother-daughter perspective. But as a dad, I think there's so much great information in here. I wouldn't think you'd have to deter yourself from reading it if you're not a mom in this situation. Oh, no, no. Yeah, fantastic work. There's so much insight. I know my daughter's 14 months old, but I I hope that I can take some stuff out of this for when she is older and I can be prepared for what is to come. You already are. My discussion with you just tells me that you've already done that. Well, perfect. Perfect. I fooled you today, so we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me. Big thank you to Dr. Ronnie Cohen-Sandler for her time. The book, Anything But My Phone Mom, Raising Emotionally Resilient Daughters in the Digital Age is available now wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for taking some time to listen and hang out with me today. My name is Jeff St. Pierre, and until next time, be well.